Welcome back to the Thinking Out Loud podcast. As always, I am your host, Dave Hallahan, and I'm so excited to get season two kicked off with this interview with Mark Charles. But before we get into all of that, just want to remind you all that those sounds that you hear are from our friends, lowercase people, who have released their latest single, Air, now available on iTunes, Apple Music, and streaming on Spotify. Please go check it out, support them, follow them at lowercase people nj on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Also, you can find the full-length version of this interview on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thinkingoutloudpod, p-a-t-r-e-o-n, dot com slash thinking out loud pod once you become a patron supporter at any amount you will receive full-length episodes this one was posted a few days ago and is about 15 minutes longer once you become a patron you'll be able to hear more of mark charles personal story more examples of abraham lincoln's white supremacy and cory booker's placating to white money in the democratic party those are just a few of the things that you're missing in this interview that you would hear if you were a patron supporter of this podcast so thank you for considering being a patron check it out and get some more information at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash thinking out loud pod today's guest is mark charles he is half dutch half navajo and is running for president in 2020 and he is super fascinating obviously he has a different insight into the lives and the history and the treatment of the indigenous people of America, and that is close to his heart. That gives him a unique perspective on many of the different policies and ways forward for America. I think you'll really enjoy this interview, but I posted this on the 4th of July, not by accident. Uh, Today, President Trump is planning a grand militaristic-style celebration on the National Mall in front of the Lincoln Memorial. And here are some of Mark Charles' thoughts that he posted on his personal Facebook page, which you can find at www.facebook.com slash Mark Charles Wireless Hogan. He says, For a colonial nation that was founded on the dehumanizing concept of discovery, built on the backs of African slaves and expanded through the ethnic cleansing and genocide of native nations. For a nation whose military history includes Indian massacres and a war of extermination, for a nation whose greatest president, Abraham Lincoln, ethnically cleansed Dakota and Winnebago from the state of Minnesota, the Cheyenne and Arapaho from Colorado, and the Navajo and Mescalero Apache from the territory of New Mexico, for a nation that awarded 18 medals of honor to soldiers who participated in the massacre at Wounded Knee, for a nation that awarded 425 medals of honor to soldiers who participated in the Indian War campaigns, for the only nation in the world that not only used nuclear weapons, but dropped them on civilian targets, For a nation whose constitution never mentions women, specifically excludes natives, and counts Africans as three-fifths human. 
and for a nation that annually celebrates a declaration of independence which, to this day, refers to native peoples as merciless Indian savages. I do not think a triumphal, militaristic, and politicized celebration of that declaration, especially one held in front of the Lincoln Memorial and led by a white landowning male president who has made billions of dollars, purportedly, as a real estate development, i.e. buying and selling the lands that were stolen from and ethnically cleansed native peoples. I do not think, correction, I know that a celebration of this sort is not inclusive of all the people. A day like this calls for reflection. A day like this might even call for lament. A day like this definitely calls for the creation of a common memory. And he goes on a little bit further. But this is the kind of conversation that I have with Mark Charles. And Mark Charles explains a lot of his history, a lot of the things that he has studied and learned a lot of where his passions are as a member of the indigenous people of this country his story his history is vastly different from mine and so i just did a lot of listening and i would encourage you to do a lot of listening as well we talk about this idea of white supremacy we talk about the doctrine of discovery both of those things can turn off an audience especially a white audience, but I ask that you just listen to the entire conversation. If you are intrigued, if you want to learn more, he talks about a few different resources. He has a resource of his own coming out in November. You can check out his website, wirelesshogan.com, W-I-R-E-L-E-S-S-H-O-G-A-N.com, or markcharles2020.com. Check out either of those websites to see a little bit more about what Mark Charles is about and the things that we talk about, the doctrine of discovery, white supremacy. And we do quickly get into this this concept of the of the doctrine of discovery. For those who are not initiated, we don't we don't give a definition of it in the podcast, but the doctrine of discovery was something that was established in the late 15th century and basically said that European White European Christians could colonize any land that they found inhabited by non-white European non-Christians. And so today, being the 4th of July, our Independence Day, we celebrate our history as Americans. But I think it might be time to question our history as Americans, to repent of our history of Americans, and to listen to people like Mark Charles, who come from the indigenous people of the United States who ask that the people, the indigenous people of this land be taken seriously, be treated fairly, be apologized to, that the wrongs that have been made against these people would begin to be made right. And that will be a long journey, a hard journey. But Mark has some ideas as to how we can do that. And I found this conversation to be great. Mark seemed interested in coming back, talking about some more. So I look forward to continuing this conversation with him. But I'm sure that you will enjoy this portion of that conversation. And so Mark Charles, again, he's from the Navajo Nation. They have a traditional way of introducing themselves. And so I asked Mark to to introduce himself in a traditional way with us. And so here 
is Mark Charles. Let me introduce myself traditionally. Yate, Mark Charles Yenish, yeah. Sin Bake Dene Nishle, Doto Higlini Bashachin, Sin Bake Dene Dashache, Doto Chitni Dashanella. In the Navajo culture, when you introduce yourself, you always introduce your four clans. And we're a matrilineal people, and our identities come from our mother's mother. So my mother's mother happens to be, or is American of Dutch heritage. And so I say, Sin Bake Dene, and translated, that means I'm from the wooden shoe people. <laughs> My father's mother, my second clan, is Tohiglini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father, is also Tsinbake Dene'a. And then my fourth clan, my father's father, is Totochitni, and that's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. Awesome. Well, thank you. Uh- for that and for for joining us today uh, i'm excited to to have you on as i i just explained to you uh i recently just learned of you and kind of the work that that you're doing through twitter and through different things and kind of have been watching uh videos i watched your ted talk and uh a few videos that you have on your personal website all of which i'll link to in our show notes so that afterwards if people want to kind of dive in a little bit more and see what you're about they can watch those so you have a, a book that is coming out. You are currently, you have begun this campaign for the 2020 presidential election. I kind of discovered you not, learned of you not knowing that you were a Christian and was intrigued already. And then when I found out you were a Christian, I was like, okay, this adds like a whole nother layer to it. So why don't you share with us a little bit of your faith background? Yeah, so my uh, my parents, they actually met... Uh, at a mission compound in New Mexico that was run by the Christian Reformed Church. Uh, my, my mother was there as a nurse, and she was a missionary, actually on her way to Africa, and stopped at this Indian mission in New Mexico to um, kind of do some training before she went to Africa. And my father, his parents were working on this mission compound as translators for the early, uh, some of the missionaries of the Christian Reformed Church. And my father had just gotten out of the Marine Corps, and he was there um, doing some work on campus. And so he and my mother met and hmm. ended up dating and falling in love and getting married. And she never went to Africa. And they stayed in that area um, most of their life. My father was is a school teacher and uh, taught um, both at Rehoboth, which was the mission they were at for a few years, but then taught for most of his career uh on in schools on the Navajo okay. reservation. Um, so I grew up in Gallup, New Mexico, which is a border town to the Navajo reservation. So my faith in my mother's side of the family, my, my, that side of the family, I don't know how many generations back. Right. My mother's side of the family has been Christian, but it goes way, way, way back. Um, on my father's side of the family, um, both of my grandparents, my father's parents were boarding school mm. survivors. And uh, it was in the boarding school that my grandmother became a Christian. And while that is a good thing, I would say that she was introduced to Jesus, the way she was introduced and the way the boarding schools worked, where they were part of a a forced assimilation, um, almost cultural genocide being used by both the government and the Mm. churches beginning in the late 1800s and going through... Uh, the middle, almost to the end of the 1900s. Um, and the the whole purpose of the boarding schools was to kill the Indian to save the man. Mm-hmm. And so students or children were taken from their homes. 
They were put in these military-style boarding schools. They were punished for speaking their languages. Mm -hmm. They were punished for practicing their culture. They literally were given the message that you need to become a Christian, but to become a Christian, you first have to become an American mm -hmm. because your kind of savage, heathen, pagan culture is not acceptable. Mm -hmm. And so because my grandmother was converted under this pretense, right. um, her and my grandfather, who was also a Christian and a boarding school survivor, they did not teach the language to my father. They did not part teach the culture to my father and his sister. Um, even though they, he, my father grew up in Shiprock, New Mexico, they were on the reservation most of his life. Um, but they did hmm. not teach the language or the culture to them. And so my father didn't know what to teach it right. to me. And when I was born, we were living on this, this mission compound in New Mexico um, run by the Christian Farm Church. And I, I often describe my growing up experiences. I, I grew up in a Dutch ghetto um, right near a, a border town, um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> off just off of the Navajo right. Reservation. And so I grew up with all of these three very different cultures, yeah. the, the Dutch American culture, the, the just your general U.S. American culture, and then the Navajo least relationships and people, even though I wasn't being taught the, the culture per se. Right. And that was my experience growing up. And then, so I became a Christian at a very young age and considered myself a Christian. I was in the Christian form church. And then when I was in college, I went to school at UCLA and I would say in college, I often talk about that to where I began to own my faith. Okay. And so I was actually out teaching regularly, preaching regularly in churches and was called actually a few, about a year and a half later by a church in Denver, which was a, a part of the Christian Reformed Church called the Christian Indian Center. Been operating for 40, 50 years now, and it's been a mission to the native community in Denver Okay. Um, by the CRC, by the Christian Reformed Church. And they called me to be their pastor, even though they knew I was a lay pastor. And technically, I was an elder at another church assigned to this church as a preaching elder. I'm like, potato, potato. I was there pastoring the church <laughs> for two years. Yeah. And in my first council meeting with the, with the church council, we sat down and they said to me, they said, our last pastor introduced us to this concept of contextualizing worship for the Navajo culture. And we'd like you to lead us in that understanding. Uh, and I said, that sounds great. How do you spell it? Uh, like I had no clue what they were talking about. Right, and right. they said, there's a gathering happening later this summer in Hawaii called the World Christian Gathering on Indigenous Peoples. And it's indigenous Christian leaders from all over the world coming together to talk about what does it mean to be of their cultures, of their tribes, mm. of their people, and yet follow this guy, Jesus. Right. And so they said, we want to send you and your wife to this conference. And I said, you know, for no other reason than the sake of the gospel, I will pick up my cross and board <laughs> that plane and go to Hawaii with my family for two weeks. Right. And, and so I went to this conference and it was absolutely eye-opening for me of interacting with indigenous believers from all over the world who had a similar experience in their communities of being colonized by the gospel. The same way the boarding schools taught Jesus, but also said, we have to kill the Indian in you in order for you to have Christ. And so yeah. we began wrestling with some of that in our church. And our church was primarily Navajo, mostly in Denver. And after two years of wrestling with this, I literally came to the conclusion, my wife and I came to the conclusion of, 
if we're really going to lead this dialogue or participate in this dialogue at the leadership level, I have to be back on the reservation because I grew up in a border mm -hmm. town because my grandparents were boarding school survivors because I didn't even grow up speaking my language. I had to go back and experience these things if I really wanted to genuinely be involved in this dialogue. Right. And so we moved back to the reservation. Yeah. In this experience of spending 11 years on the reservation and three of those years in this very remote section of this reservation that my faith began changing in ways I never expected. First, I began seeing some of the deep hmm. marginalization of our native communities and experiencing it. You know, the bulk of the people we ever saw who are not native, yeah. especially in the remote part of our reservation, were people who came to give us charity or people who came to take our picture. You know, almost nobody was there for honest, authentic relationship. Hmm. And it felt like the world was passing us right. by. You know, the marginalization, the reservation community is so marginalized from the national dialogue. I watched two presidential elections from that, from our reservation, the 2008 and the 2012. And neither time, hmm. you know, our reservation is 27,000 square miles. If we were a state, we'd be the 40th largest state. We have 300,000 enrolled tribal members, and yet huh. no one comes to campaign to our native peoples. And I'm like, how can you campaign hmm. to be president of the United right. States of America, Turtle Island, and not talk to the indigenous peoples of the land? And so I began to understand this deep marginalization hmm. yeah. and then also beginning to get exposed to the history of the doctrine of discovery and you know, there, there's, there's an author, his name is Steve Newcomb, who wrote a very good book called Pagans in the Promised Land. And um, uh, he's not a Christian, but he, he goes very in depth into this doctrine of discovery and the incredibly dehumanizing influence and, and impact it's had on the indigenous peoples of Turtle Island of North America. Um, and I began getting exposed to his teachings and, and to some of his thinking and um, was a part of, I mean, I was a history major in college. And so I started doing some of my own study and looking at some of these things and it just started blowing my mind. Yeah. This history that I was never taught was, was, I was never, it was never part of our classes. And one of the clearest examples I can give you is, um, in 1851, Peter Burnett, who is the first governor of California. Now, because of the gold rush, California is one of the few states that went straight from being, that bypassed being a territory and went straight to statehood. And in 1851, Peter Burnett, who was the first governor of California, mm -hmm. in his first state of the state address, this is what he said, that a war of extermination will continue to be waged between the races until the Indian race becomes extinct must be expected. While we cannot anticipate this result, but with painful regret, the inevitable destiny of the race is beyond the power or wisdom of man to avert. Now, he's not saying there's a famine and we can't grow anything and the natives are dying. And he's not saying there's a disease that's broken out and we can't stop right. it. It's spreading and people are right. dying. He's literally saying my country and U.S. citizens cannot stop killing these people. And while that's regrettable, there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah. Now, this is the era 
of manifest destiny. Yeah. This is the era where this church is taking on this mantle of we are God's chosen people and North America is our promised land. And if you read the books of Joshua and Deuteronomy, you will see very quickly that when you have promised lands, you have God's permission to commit genocide. And so, you know, like this isn't some fringe guy off on the, on the right or the left who's, you know, hold up in this log cabin. This is the governor of California acknowledging his nation is actively committing genocide against native peoples. And there's nothing they can do to stop that. Right. And we'll continue to do, to do so. This doctrine of discovery as you, uh, you kind of came across that and these teachings, has that been like a major motivator in kind of you kind of getting into the the political realm and and all that you're doing now? One of the things that I I began learning when I was living on our reservation is our nation doesn't know how to deal with this history. And uh, here's a perfect example of that. So in 2009, Congress passed and President Obama signed House Resolution 3326. Page 45 Subsection 8113 is titled Apology to Native Peoples of the United States. Hmm. It contains a seven bullet point apology that mentions no specific tribe, no specific treaty, and no specific injustice. Hmm. It basically says you had some nice lands. Our citizens didn't take it very politely. Let's now just call it all of our lands and we'll steward it together. And then it ends with a disclaimer saying essentially nothing in here is legally binding. And that apology has never been announced, read, or publicized by the White House or by Hmm. Congress. Hmm. I found out about it by accident on December 19, (laughs) 2011, and I was beside myself. I'm a Hmm. fairly well-read educated person, I didn't know right. of this apology. If I didn't know about it, how are my neighbors and my, 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 my relatives and people who are herding sheep and boarding school survivors, and how are they ever going to hear this apology? Right. And so we actually hosted a reading of this apology in front of the Capitol building. I wrote a letter to the White House inviting President Obama. I spoke with then Governor Brownback, who was the senator in 2009, who, who initiated the apology and then also watered it down and put it in this appropriations bill. I invited him to join us. I, I sent letters to Congress members and, and religious leaders and, and business leaders and trying to get people to come. And by and large, the only people that showed up, I got a letter from the White House saying neither the president nor any of his staff will be at your event. <laughs> Governor Brownback declined to come. All of the letters I delivered and handed out and passed out and mailed to senators and congressmen, I never got a response to any of them. What I realized is I, I was convinced the t- problem was the nation just didn't know about it. Right. What I learned is that the nation didn't care because it didn't know what to do with that history. It didn't know what to do with it. If you want to build a community, he said, you have to start by creating a common memory. And I love that vision because I'm, th- this describes the challenges we have here in the U.S. to a T. We do not have a common memory. I, I was going to say, and that, that common memory, as you have said elsewhere, has to be one that encompasses all the people, not the majority culture or the 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 colonizers um because my memory as you know a 31 year old 
white male from New Jersey is very different from yours and from your parents and your grandparents. But our shared memory has to be one that encompasses all of the people. And so the, the United States doesn't teach that manifest destiny was literally God-ordained genocide. We don't talk about the facts, and this is in my book. I go through this in very close detail. One of the most genocidal presidents in the history of the United States was Abraham Lincoln. Through military force? We had had the, the Dakota War and the hanging of the Dakota 38 in Minnesota, and then the force removal of the tribes from Minnesota. We had the massacre at Sand Creek. And then the removal of the Cheyenne and Arapaho from, from Colorado, Wyoming. And then we had the long walk and the ethnic cleansing of the Navajo and Mescalero Apache from, uh, from the territory of New Mexico. Yes, through ethnic cleansing, genocidal actions, he was removing natives from these lands. And so that is not the shared memory of the United States. That's not the shared memory of Abraham Lincoln or for the majority culture. Yeah. And and this is the problem we have is, again, most of the nation holds Abraham Lincoln up as a hero. Right. You could, you are talking about uh, Abraham Lincoln's white supremacy and in other uh, talks, I've heard you talk about the, just the constitution of the United States being a white supremacist document. Uh, and I could only imagine that that is not always received well by all audiences um and it is not the job nor or shouldn't be the job of the oppressed to explain how they are oppressed but what do we what do people and i by people i think i mean mostly white people uh what do we not get about white supremacy that because i think just you using those words some people get defensive they tune that out because well i'm not a white supremacist so what do we get wrong about white supremacy what do we need to understand to be able to hear what you're telling us many people will acknowledge our nation has a problem with racism Mm -hmm. so we would say we have a we have a large group of people who are racist and then we have a smaller subset of people who are white supremacists Mm -hmm. so these are our breitbart editors these are confederate flag flyers these are our kkk members right um, but again, when you look at the history, there is a deep-seated belief, I would argue the implicit bias beneath American exceptionalism is this abhorrent lie of white supremacy. Abraham Lincoln absolutely believed in white supremacy. In the Lincoln-Douglas debates, he and Judge Douglas, they disagreed on slavery, but they absolutely agreed on white supremacy. They both got laughs from the audience when they suggested blacks might somehow be equal to whites. Hmm. They, both, they both got cheers from the audience when they explicitly affirmed white supremacy. Hmm. And, and so, you know, this is, this is the implicit bias of the nation is this American exceptionalism, which is rooted in this lie of white supremacy. And you can see it very clearly in, um, in uh, the writings of Richard Pratt. So Richard Pratt was the father of the Indian boarding schools. And in 1892, he gave a speech where he was, he was laying out his justification for boarding schools. This is two years after the massacre at Wounded Knee, and the nation was losing a bit of its stomach for the outright genocide it had been committing for most of a couple of centuries. And 
but they still wanted our land. And so this is the Indian problem. Like, okay, we, it doesn't look as good to just actively kill them all, right. but we still want their land. So we have this Indian problem. What do we do with these Indians? Well, this is where Richard Pratt suggested, well, why don't we kill the Indian and save the man? Hmm. Instead of a physical massacre, let's do cultural genocide right. and just kill the Indian in, in, in them and try and save the man. Now, when he made this argument, he, he immediately re- went back to the justification for slavery. And he says, as horrible as were the experiences of its introduction and of slavery itself, there was concealed in them the greatest blessing that ever came to the Negro race. Seven million of blacks from cannibalism in darkest Africa to partial citizenship in free and enlightened America. Left in Africa, surrounded by their fellow savages, our seven million of industrious black fellow citizens would still be savages. Transferred into these new surroundings and experiences, behold the result. They became English-speaking and civilized. And they became English-speaking and industrious through the influences of association. Scattered here and there under the care and authority of individuals of the higher race, i.e. their slave owners, they learn self-support and something of citizenship, and so reach their present place. No other influence or force could have so speedily accomplished such a result. So to the white supremacist mind, the greatest blessing you can bestow on this world of subhumans is to allow them to associate with you. Using examples from a while ago, and some may be thinking or saying, well, that was then, but we've evolved beyond that now, or we've moved past that. But even as you read that quote from Pratt, I remember not that long ago, uh, I believe, and I don't, I guess I don't want to miss, uh, represent someone else's comments, but I think it was Dennis Prager who kind of reiterated the same idea that slavery uh, of Africans was bad, but it was ultimately the best thing that could have happened for them because now they get to live in America. Their ancestors live here. That's an absolute lie rooted in the lie of white supremacy. And how else do we see, because you you referenced the the Lincoln and Douglas debates, um, but how else do we see that lie of of white supremacy, really that, and that, uh, as you said, the implicit bias of American exceptionalism which is rooted in white supremacy, how do we see that played out in our political sphere now or more recently? Yeah. So in in the last election, Donald Trump made this statement and ran on the campaign pledge of let's make America great again. Now, Hillary Clinton responded and said, America's Mm -hmm. great already. In one of the debates during the general election, she said, she not not only reiterated that point, but she said, America is great because America is good. And Donald Trump paused, President Trump paused, and he said, I agree with her. I agree with everything they just said. So they both had this broad base of agreement. They both agreed our past because if Donald Trump said make America great again, it means we used to be great, now we're not. And if Hillary said America's great already, it means we've been great and we continue to be great. And so they both agreed our past. They both agreed our history. They both agreed our foundations, which dehumanized Native peoples and people of color and women, our history, which included the genocide of Native peoples and the, and the slavery of African people. They both agreed these things were great. They disagreed if we were great in 2016. Mm. American exceptionalism is the coping mechanism for mm. a nation that's in deep denial of its genocidal past 
and its current racist reality. I, I heard someone say before that um, white evangelicals are kind of the um, the ideal American, and they meant it in this way: that white evangelicals are so individualistic that we don't think corporately; we think typically just about ourselves, right? And so we don't have a a shared memory we don't we don't look at our past and how it has brought us here and are are there some evil roots that we have to dig up and address we just look at kind of what Cory Booker said that you know are there some blemishes yes but we're getting better and so that's okay or this this issue of white supremacy well i'm not racist and therefore i'm not a part of yeah. this system um that feels like a very white American thing. Uh, and I think as a, as white Christians, too many of us have adopted that individual individualistic feel for both our faith, but our role in society at large, how, like, what is some work or how do we kind of undo that? How do we expand our framework to include not only more than just ourselves, but people of color, those who have been oppressed and downtrodden. What are what is the work that needs to be done for us to be able to uh, see from a bigger framework? So in the Old Testament, I'll, I'll d- describe this briefly. I know we don't have a lot of time, but in the Old Testament, the people of Israel had a land covenant with the God of Abraham. Their land covenant, which stated if they obeyed God, they would prosper and be blessed on their land. And if they disobeyed God, they would be ex- mm-hmm. exiled and, and suffer away from their land. This land covenant set up their prosperity as a barometer of their relationship with God. It wasn't the only barometer, the only measure, but the people of Israel could generally say, tell if they were good in their relationship with God by how well right. they were prospering. If they were flourishing, their crops were growing, they were on their land, they could say, yes, we're doing good with God right now. If they were exiled from their land and their crops weren't growing and they were hungry or famine or war, okay, we we must have displeased God somehow. Now, when Jesus came into the world, the people of Israel were under the oppression of the Romans, and so they were looking for a political Messiah, again, to come and set them free so they could prosper again. Right. And so we had the Pharisees who were keeping the law of the priests to try and compel God to see their righteousness and send his Messiah sooner. You know, the people of Israel were were very aware they were out of sorts with God and they were trying to fix it. And they were waiting for a Messiah who was going to come and make things imperially or politically correct again. Now, Jesus was adamant he did not come as a political Messiah. And when he actually was talking to his disciples... And he said, who do people think I am? And they said, well, some think you're John the Baptist. Well, who do you think I am? Peter identified him and said, you're the Messiah. And then Jesus taught them that the Messiah must suffer and die. Now, again, this was completely anti to what Peter thought. And so he rejected that and rebuked him. But then Jesus rebuked Peter and went on to teach that not only will the Messiah suffer and die, but his disciples will also suffer and die. (laughs) In the Beatitudes, in the, in the Beatitudes earlier, he said to his disciples, blessed are you when people persecute you on account of my name. So Jesus is giving his disciples a new barometer. They will not know that they are doing well in their discipleship when they prosper. They will know that they are doing well in their discipleship when they are being persecuted. Right. And the disciples hated that barometer. <laughs> yeah. They rejected it. And we still do. And it wasn't. 
it wasn't until Pentecost that they finally got it. Mm -hmm. And after they got it, most of the disciples went on to die a martyr's death. Right. In the 4th century, 303 AD, Eusebius is writing a book called Ecclesiastical History. It's a book of 11 volumes, 11 volumes in this book. And he's laying out in bloody gory detail the martyrs of the church. And in 303 AD, the great persecution touches him personally. He records that he witnessed most of the martyrs, many of the martyrs himself, many of them he knew personally. And after that persecution, his whole thinking about, oh, you can see changes in the way he thinks about martyrs. Before they were heroes of the faith who were dying with joy for the joy set before them, sharing in the suffering of Christ. And after that, in book 8 and then in book 9, 10, and 11, he begins focusing on the emperors. And in book 8, he begins propping up Constantine as a God-ordained emperor of Rome. And he compares him to Moses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is an emperor of the, of the nation that's been persecuting, and he's propping up, comparing him to Moses. And what he's doing is he's, he's, he wants to now end the persecution, mm. and so he creates this heresy right. of Christian empire, which Jesus was absolutely opposed to, and begins propping up Constantine as God's mm. chosen emperor of this Christian empire. And Constantine bites and Christianizes Rome. And if you read the book, Ecclesiastical History, if you're writing a book called Ecclesiastical History, the History of the Church, you should have some understanding that your book doesn't have an ending. Right. Because your book will end when the bridegroom returns. So this is merely a chapter in an ongoing saga yeah. that is being written to this day. But in Eusebius's version of Ecclesiastical History, the last chapter of book 11 absolutely has a conclusion, and the conclusion is the salvation that comes to Rome, not through Christ, but through Constantine. Hmm. Hmm. Because if you want to prop up a Christian empire, which Jesus was absolutely opposed to, your first order of business right. is to write Christ out of ecclesiastical history. And so this is, once the, the church gives up this barometer of persecution and tries to embrace mm. this Old Testament barometer of prosperity. Right. Now it's just in bed with empire. That, con that Christian nation, that's not the goal. Jesus came to plant a church, not to create a Christian empire. The goal right. of the church is not to legislate right. their theology. As I just, I saw recently, it was, I think it was attributed to Kierkegaard, but uh, the quote was, as soon as Christianity gains power, it ceases to be Christ-like. Absolutely. And, and I think that is a truth that the American church especially has not grasped yeah. <laughs> at all. That, in fact, the American church has been striving for, and in some cases successful, in a large amount of ways, been successful at gaining power, but we've lost our Christ-like witness in the process. And you see that very clearly in the vision of Constantine. So Constantine right. claims to have seen a vision of Christ telling him to convert to Christianity and under this cross, he will win his battles. Right. And now we have another example of a father of the church being receiving a vision of Christ, which is Paul on his way to Damascus. <laughs> right. And as he's right, going, right, right, Christ right. appears to him and blinds him. Why are you persecuting me? Since him stumbling into Damascus, lets him sit there for three days. 
After three days, he sends Ananias to him, and the messages go and tell Paul how much he must now suffer on account of my name. <laughs> Quite a different message. He's not punishing Paul. Again, what's the barometer? Mm -hmm. How will you know you are doing a good discipleship right, right. when you are persecuted? Yeah. So Christ, I am absolutely confident, would not peer, appear to the most powerful emperor in the, in the world and tell him to conquer right. under the symbol of a cross. Yeah. I don't know who Constantine saw a vision of. I guarantee you it wasn't Christ. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, unfortunately, Mark, I am out of time. Um, I, I've loved our conversation and I feel I would love to talk to you for like another hour or more, but, um, so much to, to think about, to unpack. Um, if people want to dig in more, uh, when is your, is this book, uh, coming out? The book is scheduled to be released in bookstores November 5th. Okay. And is it? Um, it's already available for pre-order okay. on both InterVarsity's webpage, and you can view it on Amazon's website. Okay, awesome. Um, and you can pre-order it if you want. Okay, to. I'll link to that in uh, the show notes for this episode. Uh, and if people want to uh, follow you, where can they do that? 